this week, getting a handle on global deaths from air pollution. It's much higher than, than HIV AIDS. And science in the theatre, how a new play is tackling the global food crisis. We need to find ways of engaging with generalist audiences about the importance of what we're doing. Plus, tiny camouflage nanoparticles fool the immune system. This is The Nature Podcast for September the 17th, 2015. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. I'm standing on the Euston Road in London. It's just round the corner from HHQ. It's also one of the most polluted places in all of the UK. And air pollution isn't just about inconvenience. Tiny particles in the air can get into our lungs, causing illness and even death. But just how bad a problem is it? Well, it's hard to say, because although we have reliable on-the-ground measurements of pollution in places like the Euston Road, the data is far from complete in developing countries and more remote areas. Now, a group of researchers has set out to create a more global picture. I called up Jos Lelyfeld of the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Germany to find out what his team did differently. Well, in order to get a global overview and to be able to compare different countries with each other, we used a, a simulation model that uh, simulates the weather and also uh, the climate, and then added on uh, processes that uh, that simulate air air quality. So it's a combined global uh, simulation system of weather and air air quality that can be used to calculate concentrations near the ground that our people are inhaling. And so that model tells us how bad the pollution is in different parts of the world based on different pollutants. How exactly do you translate that into the number of deaths in different regions? There, are, there have been many studies to collect data on uh, human health and also on air pollution. And then these different disease categories are being linked to uh, concentrations that are being measured. And uh, these functions are then used in combination with the calculated concentrations to calculate the health impact. And how bad is it? How many people are dying each year as a result of air pollution? Well, this is an astounding number of more than 3 million premature deaths per year worldwide uh, related to air pollution. Now, a number like that, it sounds huge, but at the same time, I don't really know how many people across the world die each year from all causes. Well, maybe we can put it into perspective. It, it's quite much higher than, than HIV, AIDS, and also, uh, for, for example, malaria. So there are many causes of death. And uh, in some countries, actually, air pollution is a leading cause. But in, in many countries, uh, air pollution is, is a big issue. So it's one thing to link air pollution to a certain number of deaths, but of course there are a number of different sources for air pollution. What's actually the root cause of this pollution in different contexts? Yeah, so we distinguish uh, seven sources of outdoor air pollution, such as uh, power generation, agriculture, and uh, traffic, etc. So we relate the mortality by air pollution to these different uh, different source categories. We find that the leading category is actually uh, residential and energy use uh, for heating and cooking. And of course, we mostly think of air pollution in terms of industry and traffic, almost uh, by impulse. But there are many small 
fires, especially in India and in China and, and Bangladesh, etc., that where many people are creating such uh, pollution, and that comes together and creates a large cloud of air pollution that affects uh, human health. But in Europe, eastern United States and Russia, Turkey, Japan, agriculture is actually the leading source. The reason for that is, is that uh, the, the use of uh, fertilizers and also uh, animal husbandry uh, releases ammonia into the atmosphere. Together with other pollutants, ammonia is a, is a, a very important factor in forming these uh, fine particulates that are uh, detrimental to human health. So looking forward into the future as populations continue to grow and industry continues to grow, is this problem of deaths due to air pollution just going to get worse and worse? Yes, it will definitely be if, we, if we're not going to control it. If you assume that the current legislation is not going to change, and this is what we call a business-as-usual scenario, then the number of people that will die from air pollution will probably roughly double by the middle of the century. And this is not very far away. All these results sound like quite a stark warning. Is there any hope? Is there anything we can do to stop the number of pollution-related deaths continuing to increase? Yes, and that's the good news. Of course, you can do something. And uh, for each country where different sources might have a different weight, uh, you have to avoid some of these uh, emissions. And there are many initiatives, but these need to be pursued with more vigour, I think, in especially the developing world. Of course, the Paris climate talks are coming up. Is there any hope that if there were a meaningful deal, that would also have a knock-on benefit on pollution and pollution-related deaths? We have seen that this is very difficult to reach international agreement on, on carbon dioxide emissions. But I think it might be more feasible to convince people to clean up the air. Actually, many of the legislators live in, in polluted cities, so they, they might have a personal interest in doing something about it. And if you reduce air pollution, you also usually introduce more efficient technology that then in turn produces less carbon dioxide. So I think there is a possibility of a win-win situation here. That was Jos Lallifeld. Head on down to nature.com forward slash nature for the full paper, as well as the news and views. Coming up, Sharmini Bundell has a day out at the theatre. But first, she joins us in the studio for this week's research highlights. Sperm whales use a particular pattern of vocal clicks to identify their social cliques. It looks like individual whales learn a particular dialect of vocal calls by copying the sounds made by their closest friends. Canadian researchers collected 18 years of data on whale calls from around the Galapagos Islands to try to work out how distinct-sounding subgroups form in a complex sperm whale society. Computer simulations showed that the different click dialects weren't inherited or learnt from the wider group. Instead, whales preferentially copied the kinds of sounds made by those that already behaved similarly to them. This increases the differences between social subgroups, but could also promote bonding within the clique. Read that paper in full at Nature Communications. Talking of different groups speaking different languages, climate scientists seem to use more cautious language than their sceptic counterparts. The last report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, was plugged into language analysing software. The programme also analysed a sceptic response to the IPCC report by the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change. 
the IPCC report tends to use more cautious and neutral language, even though skeptics have often accused it of alarmism. The software refused to comment on the scientific integrity of either report. Read the full study over at Climatic Change. The problem with conventional drugs is that once they get in the body, they spread out and only a small fraction reaches the target. All the rest goes to different parts of the body, sometimes causing unwanted side effects. In military terms, conventional drugs are a bit like spraying bullets from an Uzi at your enemy in the dark. So scientists have been interested in developing a targeted missile strike. And they've got a contender, a really, really tiny one in the form of a clever nanoparticle. Scientists have long hoped that nanoparticles could work as drug delivery vehicles, circulating in the bloodstream and unloading their drug cargo at the site of interest. But the body can be a hostile place, and so researchers needed to get smart about sneaking their cargo past your body's defences. Jeff Marsh called Lyung-Fung Zheng at the University of California, San Diego. What happens to these drug-carrying nanoparticles when they enter the body? What sort of challenges do they face? So when the immune system sees these nanoparticles, they will naturally fight against these particles, trying to clean them up. The second challenge is how can we make these particles more intelligent? In other words, if they can um, specifically recognize which part of the tissue is good, which part is bad, then they can more selectively deliver the cargo. And in this paper, you've kind of killed two birds with one stone, in a sense, and, and turning to nature for your inspiration um, by trying to mimic platelets. That's correct. Platelets are a small segment of the cells in the blood. So they circulate in the bloodstream. Now, when some part goes wrong in the body, for example, there's a damage on the vasculature, the platelet can bind to that part and then to block that leakage. And was it as simple as just sort of getting some platelet material and sticking it around the edge of your nanoparticle? It's more like a camouflage idea. If you can coat these nanoparticles with a piece of the membrane of the platelet, now when you inject them into the blood, it will look like a mini platelet. So we use a cell membrane as a novel biomaterial and then wrap that membrane onto nanoparticle surface. So you've coated these nanoparticles in these plasma membrane proteins. How well do they function then? Do they escape the immune system and do they, do they find the right part of the body that a platelet would? Yes. We started from the petri dish and a test tube study. And also we did some ex vivo studies by taking some human tissues. Then we moved on to the live animal study. So we did two parts. One is for the cardiovascular disease. We used a rat model. And for the systemic bacteria infection, we use a mouse model. What sorts of medical problems do you think that this technique can be applied to then? It can be applied to pretty broad biomedical problems and healthcare problems. For example, bacteria that stay in the inside of the body, some of the bacteria are very difficult to treat. So we can use these nanoparticles to make the treatment more specific. The second very large area of use will be about cardiovascular disease. There are, of course, other parts that the platelet can show a functionality, cancer drug delivery, because we know some of the cancer cells or the tumors, the platelet can infuse into the tumor site, and the platelet has a showing specific interactions with cancer cells as well. If we 
replaces the current antibiotics with some kind of anti-cancer drug. Now, these nanoparticles can, can deliver the drugs specific to the tumor site. So I see this one has a pretty broad application potential. Can we afford to make these nanoparticles at the moment? Is this, you know, how much did it cost to make the, the amount you made for your experiment? Yeah, this comes to the uh, translational part of this technique. I think it's very promising because there are only two major components for these nanoparticles. One is the polymeric core, and this is a pretty mature industry to, to synthesize this type of polymers for biomedical use. And we have used these materials in healthcare already. The second component is about the platelet. You have various different sources to get the platelet. You can get them from the large blood supplier, or you can get the platelet from the local blood bank. Each of these platelets is on the uh, micron scale, and now we need to function them to small nanoparticles. They're on nanoscale, so we can produce large amount of these nanoparticles from every single platelet. So I imagine that we, we probably don't need a huge amount of this uh, platelet in order to fabricate these nanoparticles. How far are you off human trials? Human trials, I, what I see is still there are a couple of uh, milestones to achieve. One is to use a certified facility to produce these nanoparticles instead of producing them in a research laboratory. The second part is we need to test this system using some large animal species instead of just a rodent. Finally, th this sounds like it must have been very interdisciplinary research. Um, could you shed some light on what those meetings were like? Who did you have in the room when you were developing this? It is a pretty interdisciplinary project. It involves material scientists, chemical engineers, nano-engineers, bioengineers, pharmacists, and of course medical doctors, clinicians. These days, in order to do this type of multidisciplinary research, you need people with all different backgrounds, and you work as a single team. And every people try to tackle the problem from a different angle, and then you uh, unify all these things together, you get something really cool. That was Liang Feng Zheng talking to reporter Jeff Marsh. Speaking of interdisciplinarity, always a tough word to say, Nature's running a special on it this week. That's at nature.com forward slash inter. And while everyone in the office has been slaving away on that special, Sharmini has been slacking off to go to the theatre. Outrageous. Hiya, and can I collect the ticket for Mouthful? Bundell. What do you get if you put a scientist and a playwright in the same room? It's not a joke, and I don't actually know the answer, but this afternoon I am hoping to find out. I'm just outside Trafalgar Studios, a theatre in London's West End, waiting for the matinee performance of a show called Mouthful. But before I see the show, I'm hoping to track down the director and find out a bit more about this unusual combination. Hey, I'm, I'm looking for a Poppy Burton moment. She just Oh, hello, Poppy. So, um, I've got my ticket already, but can you tell me what the show's about? So, uh, six different playwrights, in collaboration with six different scientists, have together created six stories that each explore a different aspect of the global food crisis. Some of them are comedies, some of them are tragedies, some of them are kind of weird, future, dystopian, strange things. And the topic is the global food crisis. I mean, why did you come up with that? We started working with Professor Tim Benton uh, and 
it was really through that the beginning of that relationship that we realized both how complex and how interconnected the kind of the whole food system is in terms of the way we consume the way we produce the import export global trade um, but how much that is a system in crisis if we continue to consume as much food as we're doing and population continues to grow as it is doing we'll have to this is a terrifying statistic we'll have to produce more food by 2050 than we have done in human history and we're not saying hey guys this is what you need to do to solve it I mean sadly we can't quite solve the whole thing with a play but what it does do is it provokes hopefully it provokes the audience to to go away and maybe research some of those things in more detail the things that chime with them but is that a tricky balance because as an audience member am I coming here to be informed and educated or am I coming here to be entertained and, and how do you keep that balance yeah well that's exactly the the thing we've kind of grappled with in the making of it because no one wants to go to a piece of theatre and just watch a public lecture so we've worked really hard to uh to, to, to make them just be plays in their own right and, and work as plays. But audiences really want to be provoked kind of intellectually and challenged intellectually and it feels like there's a real appetite, pun fully intended, for the work that it explores some of those sort of bigger and more complex and even quite technical scientific ideas. Right, time to find my seat and see how all that actually translates into a play. Amazing how it can all go to so fast, isn't it? He's not telling the truth. Look on that, are they? People running about, police firing tear gas. So much food out there that you can get and still eat without being unhealthy. The six plays that made up Mouthful were really varied in the way that they communicated the science. I've already heard from the director, Poppy, about her vision for the show. What I really want now is more of a scientific perspective. One of the scientists who contributed was Professor Tim Benton, who's also the UK champion for global food security. So I headed back to the studio to give him a call. Hello. Hey Tim, how are you? Um, I went to see Mouthful yesterday, which was Oh, great. how was it? Yes, it was, it was really good fun. Really well, I'm interesting. Looking, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, having been involved in it for the last like, 18 months. Yes, yeah, so you've kind of been involved. Right, from, but even before the application for the um, funding for it. So. And what's your involvement been since then? My role kind of, you know, in a, in a science advisory way was to try and scope out some of the big issues for the food system and then to look through all of the plays and um, make sure that the conversations with scientists hadn't translated into something that jarred from a science perspective. So was your priority that they were factually accurate? I wanted them to be um, evidence-based in terms of if they made an assertion that at least there was some support for them. But I think the most important important thing is to raise awareness of some of the issues surrounding food and get people to think about the choices and the issues around the way that our food is produced and the challenges that we'll face in the future. And raising social awareness is part of what you do as a champion for global food security, so you're presumably used to a wide range of methods to get that message out, but this, this is quite an unusual one. Yes. <laughs> it certainly is a different route from the normal ones uh, for uh, helping people think. But standing up and lecturing to people in public situations only gets so far. And how did you find working with playwrights who come from a completely different background and might have sort of a different aim for the project? There was a kind of set of preconceptions that, uh, for example, organic and local 
is the best way to go um, in terms of making a sustainable and nutritious food system. And, you know, just in conversation, you know, you can say, well, actually, it's not as black and white as that and think about it this way or think about it that way or here's, here's some evidence. And were you worried about, your, about the science being dumbed down at all in translation? My view is that as a scientific community, I think we need to find ways of engaging with generalist audiences about the importance of what we're doing. That was Professor Tim Benton of Leeds University, and before that, Poppy Burton Morgan. They were talking to workshy reporter Sharmini Bundell about Mouthful, which is on at Trafalgar Studios until October the 3rd. And check out the Nature Books and Arts blog next week for a more detailed review of the show. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello. So one of the biggest stories this week is about the quest to find gravity waves. Now, before we get into the experiments that are looking for these gravity waves, what actually is a gravity wave? A gravity wave is a disturbance in the very fabric of space-time, and it was predicted by Einstein as part of his general theory of relativity, which uh, is about to turn 100 years old. How do you begin to observe a vibration in the fabric of space-time? It is indeed very hard because you can't actually absorb the wave the way that light sensor might absorb light. The wave just goes through anything. The way you can see it is by noticing its effects on space. And in particular, as the wave moves forward, it changes the shape of space sideways and up and down. And how big are these effects? If you happen to stand uh, in the vicinity of, say, um, a star collapsing into a black hole, they would be quite dramatic. They could tear you apart. But most of these phenomena that physicists hope to detect will happen maybe millions or billions of light years away. So by the time those gravitational waves that, that, that the phenomena produce get to Earth, they will have become extremely feeble. Now we're talking about uh, measuring a change in the geometry of of space-time by something comparable to the width of a hair in the distance from the sun to its nearest star. So this is a huge undertaking to detect these gravity waves from the comfort of Earth. What are researchers currently doing to try and observe these gravity waves? So there is this, this um, enormous lab called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO for short. It's already been operating in, in the previous decade, but at a level of sensitivity that people did not expect would detect anything, actually. It was more like a test or a drill. And now there is this uh, completely overhauled version of LIGO called Advanced LIGO, which is just about to come online. It's actually already online, but it's, uh, it's just about to start taking data this week. With data that's this sensitive, how can you be sure that when you think you've spotted a gravity wave, it's not actually just a car going past or something like that? It depends on the the kind of signal you observe. So um, physicists have done very complicated simulations of things like the the, uh, merging of two black holes, and they know exactly what the signature of this should be. Um, For example, there's there's the merge of two neutron stars that has been compared to a chirp, like whoop. And at the end of that, there is the actual collision. Things where they don't know exactly what the signature will be is 
uh, more messy phenomena su- such as uh, a star collapsing into a black hole. The, the, the previous version of LIGO had trouble because of man-made noise in the vicinity. And it, it could, for example, it, it was sensitive to the, the, the sound of uh, waves crashing on the, on the beach. How does LIGO fit in with BICEP, which many of our listeners might remember? So BICEP 2 um, was a radio astronomy observatory at the South Pole which was looking for the, um, the evidence of gravitational waves coming all the way back from the Big Bang. And uh, as many of our listeners may remember, uh, it was very controversial, and then in the end it turned out to be not very solid results. Now, what LIGO is trying to do is the first direct detection of gravitational waves. And it would be of enormous symbolic importance because, well, first of all, it's one of the main consequences of Einstein's uh, gravitational theory that still have not been uh, demonstrated. And it would be kind of neat to be able to do this on the 100th anniversary of his theory. Is there a genuine possibility that we might find gravitational waves within the next year or two then? So what's happening this week is they are starting a a data-taking run of three months. And uh, after which they will uh, shut down for another upgrade. Physicists involved in the experiment say that they they think they have a one in three chance of spotting a gravitational wave in this run. We'll see. On now to our second story, and Africa is preparing for something of a health crisis. Yes, it's a crisis that has been going on for a long time. Unfortunately, it didn't receive a lot of attention, and that is snake bites, which kill more than 100,000 people per year. Now, many of us have heard of tropical diseases that kill a lot of people, but apparently snake bites kill more than all uh, 17 so-called neglected tropical diseases. Now, when I think of snakes and snake bites, I think of them as a kind of constant background threat. I don't think about it being something which could produce a looming crisis. In what sense could this be an upcoming crisis? So there is a company that makes an antidote that has decided to stop making it. And this was considered the most effective antidote for African snakes. There are alternative antidotes, but their effectiveness on the venom of African snakes has yet to be proven. So is anything being done to replenish stockpiles or to find another source that could make a similar antivenom? So the company, which is uh, Sanofi Pasteur, it's it's a French company, has uh, said that it would be willing to share its know-how with uh, other companies that want to take over uh, the production of this. But the other thing that's happening is that Doctors Without Borders may be starting clinical trials at some of its uh, um, hospitals in Africa to see if the alternative treatments are, are effective. And what's the World Health Organization doing amidst this crisis, which is claiming so many lives? Apparently not enough. Um, the, the WHO has uh, formal programs of prevention of diseases such as um, river blindness or uh, dengue fever, but there is no formal program for this problem of preventing snake bites in the first place. Davide, thanks a lot for joining us in the studio. Thanks very much, Adam. And where can I read more about these stories, Adam? Well, Noah, nature.com forward slash news, of course. That's all from us this week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker.